The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Scorching sun, burning bush, miraculously parted water. This morning we begin Exodus, and it is an epic of all epics. Here we read about one of the most loved and exciting pieces of recorded history. And thankfully, this is not merely human history, but it is biblically preserved history. And as such, it does what was just prayed. It reveals our great God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who equips us with everything we need. This morning, we journey back to an era of swords and sandals shadowed by the pyramids. But in it, we see that there is a God who saves. And so I've titled our sermon series through Exodus, Exodus, the God who sovereignly saves. And this morning, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page number 53. So you'll want a Bible in front of you. So the pew Bible is page 53. Or if you have a copy of God's word with you or in Exodus 1 and 2, the title of our first sermon Today's sermon is the need for an exodus, and hopefully you received a bulletin, and the bulletin gives the four movements that I see in God's word in Exodus 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 1 contains a few centuries of time, chapter 2 contains about 80 years, and then chapter 3 through chapter 40 all chronicles one single year of history. This book focuses on what God has done for his people. And so number one on your handout, if you have the bulletin or if you're a note taker, number one is the people of God's promise to Abraham. Our brother just read Exodus 1, 1 through 7. You'll notice in verse 1, the word Israel is also the name for Jacob. We're still that early in the Bible. So these are Jacob's descendants, which we then come to know as Israelites. I'm very thankful all the names of the children are listed again. That was helpful for me to read this week because we are running out of baby names. And this is, this is a good list. But verse 7, don't miss what's happening here if, if you just remember that we finished the book of Genesis not that long ago. Verse 7 says the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied. Do you recognize those words, fruitful and multiply? They're very important in the Bible. God gives them to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, verse 28. God gives them then to Noah and his sons in chapter 8 and chapter 9 so that they won't be missed. God gives them to Abraham in chapter 17 and chapter 22. Then he gives them to Isaac in chapter 26, Jacob in 28 and 35. And then it's repeated of Joseph's sons in chapter 48. So this phrase is very, very important that God has a commission to his people to be fruitful and multiply. But what started with Adam, we now find is being fulfilled in Israel. So it is now the people of Israel through which God is mediating his blessing, more specifically his promise to Abraham. And 400 years have passed since Joseph lived and died. And so now Egypt is this different place. But God is fulfilling his promise even there. His promise to give innumerable descendants to Abraham. His promise to multiply him. And yet they're not yet in the land that he's promised. It's very helpful for you and I. Have you ever felt like, well, maybe I'm God's people, but I'm not in the land yet that God promised. Exodus then is a very helpful book for us to think about what it's like living not yet in the promised land, 
but living as God's people. Because they don't yet live in the promised land, they live with enemies of God's promise and person. So now we're going to read that about that in verse 8. Look in God's word in verse 8 of Exodus 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Probably the idea is he did not care about whatever agreement the previous establishment had with Joseph. You may remember from the end of Genesis when we went through it that God through Joseph actually saved Egypt and all of the nations nearby. Joseph became essentially the prime minister of Egypt and his family was given the land of Goshen, which is upper Egypt or northern Egypt. And they thrive there. But this new regime does not care. So verse 9, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly. Maybe a better translation would be harshly with them. And then don't miss this phrase, lest they multiply. You remember the phrase, right? So what is this new king opposing? He's opposing the promise of God. He's standing against what God said God would do. So now verse 10, and if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, which is not really his concern. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they made them build for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. We should remember that in a corrupt fallen world, God's good promises will be opposed by some. God's good plan and purpose will actually be opposed by wicked people. We should understand as God's people that we will be opposed. Jesus is very frank about this. If they hated you, how much more will they hate? If they hated me, how much more will they hate you as my followers? Lest we get angry about the actual people opposing us, though, we should remember that they are, in fact, carrying out Satan's will. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says this, The prince of the power of the air is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What's actually happening in Exodus is the serpent is trying to make sure that the special son is never born. He's working to stop that line for the Messiah from coming into existence. Jim Hamilton writes well, The king of Egypt wore a serpent on his crown and serves as the father of serves his father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. Let us not be lulled to sleep about the fact that Satan is real and he does oppose God's people and he works actively to fight against God's plan. But here's a wonderful theme that we'll see in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, no matter who opposes us, if God is for us, who can stand against us? So as Satan is opposing, they actually multiply more. And the more they spread abroad. Psalm 105, 23 through 24 says, The Lord made his people very fruitful, too numerous for their foes. God is actually expanding his promise right as Satan is opposing him. Verse 13, this new king of Egypt, Pharaoh, is even more wicked. So verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they made them ruthlessly work as slaves. But there is something for them. 
and that is God's unearned grace. I want to remind you and encourage you this morning, if you ever feel like, well, yes, that's great that God is for us, but I'm not good enough to have God on my side. But do you remember much about Jacob and his sons? (laughs) Remember, they're the ones that actually sold Joseph in slavery, and now they're all in slavery. They're the ones that denied God. They're the ones that show up with 70 people, a mere drop in the economic bucket of Egypt. God set his love on them, not because of their faithfulness, not because of their size, not because of their power, but because of God's grace. And when God is yours, you have more than enough. This will be the key theme through Exodus. In Exodus 6, verse 7, God says, when I bring you out of Egypt, I want, I'm going to do that so that everyone knows that I am the Lord your God. In chapter 7, he says, when Pharaoh opposes you, I will show the Egyptians that I am the Lord. In chapter 8, he says in verse 22, even when the plagues come, I'll make sure they don't affect you so that everyone knows that I am the Lord. When God is with you, who can stand against you? And he's with us because of his grace, not because of our merit. So number one, the people of God's promise. But now number two on your handout, a ruler set at opposing God's promise. We see now that the wicked king of Egypt, Pharaoh, digs in his heels further. So verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. We should note that if you're just reading through the Bible, you've gone through Genesis and now you're in Exodus, wickedness has now escalated to a previously unknown degree. Don't misunderstand me. We we were wicked immediately east of Eden. Cain murdered Abel. But that wickedness can actually get worse. We have the global flood because of the violence and the continual evil thoughts. And then even after the flood, we have the Tower of Babel. Through Abraham, God then starts to work. But this is the first time we read in the Bible where someone is killing children, someone is killing babies. I want to make sure we're clear on something, that in the Bible we read in James 2, that if you offend the law in any one point, you're a lawbreaker. You you deserve the condemnation. We also read an incredibly glorious balance in truth that any sin, no matter how heinous, can be saved by grace because Christ has conquered sin and death on the cross. But in between these two things, that any one sin is enough to condemn and any sin can be saved, we sometimes forget that on earth, sin does have degrees. Did you know in John 19, when Jesus stands before Pilate, Jesus says this to him, those who turned me over to you committed the, here's his exact words, committed the greater sin. So according to Jesus, some sins are greater than others. And actually in Exodus, we're going to see an escalation of wickedness. This is very timely for us because sometimes we feel like the world is escalating in its wickedness. Can it actually get worse? And if it gets worse, what do we do? And here we see God, God's work in escalating wickedness. I'd like you to notice that God first works through those who fear him more than their governors. Look in verse 17. Praise God for this. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They didn't fear Pharaoh who could snap his fingers and have them murdered. 
They feared God enough to disobey their human authorities. God commends them for this. Look in verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. It's a, it's a likely story. But notice what God does in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. And notice how God keeps fulfilling his purpose. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Now notice what God does in verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families too. So now the midwives are having children. Now they're even multiplying. See, there's something very important here we see. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Have you noticed that so far Pharaoh has not even been named? This is on purpose. But we know the names of the midwives. God remembers those who are his. God cares for those who are his. God works through those who are his. Do not fear those who seem to have power, who don't even don't even, they're not even worthy of record. Their name doesn't even get recorded. When in fact, God is working through those who know what he said in chapter 9, verse 6 of Genesis. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. It's wrong to take a life. God is the Lord of life. And there are times, Christians, when we not only have the right, but the responsibility to resist authorities that are compelling us to do what is wicked. In fact, the Bible doesn't make much sense if you're not familiar with this theme. You know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know Esther, you know Mordecai, you know Peter, who famously said we ought to obey God rather than men. You know the New Testament church defiantly worshiping Jesus regardless of the government's edicts. Now, I don't say these things lightly because when I preach, I first want to be faithful to God, but then I secondarily do pray through you where you sit because you sit in the same place most of the time through the directory. Try to remember how this will affect you. I don't want to say something without thinking about how it will affect you. You in your workplace, in your life, by obeying God, could face costly consequences. I don't want to be light about that at all. You may face more costly consequences than I would. So nothing about me wants to lightly encourage you to step out in faith, except for the fact that God through this text tells us and reminds us we ought to fear God more than anybody else. You see, the reality is, yes, obeying God might be costly, but God infinitely grants more than his enemies can take. So don't be afraid to fear God and obey him, regardless of what the culture demands. The need for an exodus is the title for this first sermon, and you can see why that need exists. Here God's enemies have enslaved God's people, but even worse, now they're slaughtering God's sons. And in doing so, we now read the backdrop of which all of this evil is happening. God sets apart a specific son, a certain baby boy. So number three on your handout, God sets apart a deliverer to fulfill his promise. Verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now the Levites won't be set apart as a people until Exodus chapter 28 and 29. There is no Levitical priesthood yet. 
So why is it being recorded that this baby boy is a son of Levites? Because if you know your biblical history, you know the Levites are set-apart servants. And it's given us a hint, this will be a set-apart son. This child will be set apart for a specific purpose. Verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, it's a difficult translation of the Hebrew word tov. You may have beautiful, you may have good. None of those are quite right. It probably just means that the child was healthy and exist. And therefore, she now has to come up with a plan for him. She hid him three months. So put yourself in her shoes. You have a baby and it's a boy and it's a healthy boy at a time where having a healthy boy means he's supposed to be killed. So what are you going to do? Well, for three months, maybe you can hide him and no one will hear him. But as, as I know, and this is why I'm glad I have multiple rooms in my house, eventually they start making noise. <laughs> and you have to move them somewhere. Now, the verse 3, she says she could hide him no longer. So she took him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among it by the reeds of the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Hebrews 11 verse 23 talks about the faith of Moses, but then it pauses to talk about the faith of his mother and father. It says this, by faith, Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict. I want to speak to those of us that are called to be parents right now. Parents, have you ever felt frustrated by the evil demands of culture on your children? Have you ever felt frustrated by the evil expectations of this world on your children? And then you thought, they want my children to do something evil, but I don't know a better alternative. Um, I'm hesitant with this story, but I'm going to give it to you, and then I'll try to give some caveats afterwards, okay? So two years ago, uh, we were here, and our daughter started school here, and that was during all the COVID lockdowns. And so she was on school on a screen with our Wake County public school system. And I'm thankful this is not the case all across the board, but this was our experience. The one blessing of the fact that her schooling was online is that I could walk into the room and see what her teacher was saying to her. And her teacher was trying to discourage my six-year-old girl from believing in God. So the teacher worked very aggressively to mock to undercut, to make light, to present it as silly that my daughter would believe that God exists. Now, in that moment, we had this moment of, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Because we looked at our resources. My wife needs to work for financial reasons, so we, we can't homeschool. I couldn't afford any other school options. So here we are like, all right, um, this lady wants to murder my child spiritually. I can't let that happen, but what do I do? So we prayed through that. What's the right decision here? What, what can we do? And then you just felt like you're stepping in faith, not sure what God's going to do. And over the next several months, God provided a scholarship we didn't expect. God opened an opening in a Christian school that seemed impossible. And then the Lord has provided each step of the way. Now, the caveat I want to give you is this. I'm giving you a story of the principle, not the specifics. Don't think, parent, that you need to do the exact school choice we made. Perhaps you can stay exactly where you are and go to the principal and they bring in a teacher who doesn't actively undercut their walk with the Lord. That'd be a great thing. But here's the principle in the text we must not miss. There are moments where obeying God puts us between a rock and a hard place. We simply cannot do what the sinful leaders want us to do. And yet on the other hand, we have no idea how we're going to provide a way forward. So what do we do in those moments? 
we put our baby in a basket and trust them with a sovereign God. And watch God's goodness in the verses that follow. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket. What are the odds? <laughs> the basket could have been eaten by crocodiles. The basket could have sunk. The basket could have been on the bank until the baby died. But the, the basket floats under God's sovereign hand. And it floats at the exact time, irony of all ironies, that Pharaoh's daughter is down there. Look at how the text continues. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. I want to remind you this morning, when you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place, do not underestimate God's good providence. If you feel like there are no alternatives, don't forget the God who guides a basket right where it ought to go. Have you ever thought about or really dwelt on the fact that God has planned out your life? Acts 17 verse 26 says, God from one man has made every nation to live on the face of the earth. God has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place. The parents you had, the education you have, the family you have today, the way your career is gone, where you live, when you live, are all God's good plan. God has formed all of us for his unique plan, his unique purpose, and he guides us in mercies that are beyond what we could ever ask. Look at how he does this in verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, praise God for an oldest girl that takes some initiative. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. This is unbelievable. God not only providentially guides the basket, God has the older sister who we later learn is Miriam, make sure that Moses is nursed, weaned and raised by his own mother, which at that point would have been three or four years. That's how kind God is. And guess what? Pharaoh pays for it. And all the mothers in the room said, amen, amen. <laughs> what a good God we have. Pharaoh is now paying for the Savior that God has brought to replace him. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. This is even more striking, especially if you know a little Hebrew. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Though there is an Egyptian word that's close to Moses, this is the Hebrew word Moshe, which means that this daughter of Pharaoh knew a little bit of Hebrew, but she didn't know it very well because Hebrew declines and it has first person or second or third person, depending on how you pronounce it. And she pronounced it as I drew him out, but actually the pronunciation is he draws out. She didn't even realize unwittingly that God was using her to give Moses a name describing what his destiny would be, to draw his people out. God's fingerprints are all over this. 
In fact, as we read Exodus right following Genesis, it's hard not to remember the last time we saw someone floating on a boat and to not think again of Noah and God's care for his plan of redemption. Let me remind you this morning that we can trust God, especially when the times seem dark. At the end of Exodus 2, we'll read that the slavery became so oppressive that the Israelites are crying out, God, please get us out of here. But they don't know that God's already floated down the Nile, the person he set apart to deliver them. Isn't it so true in our own life? There are moments in our own personal life or in our own family or in our own country or in our own business where we feel like, man, these are the darkest days. God, help me. And we don't know that he's already set apart the solution. In fact, we're going to read about this 1,500 years later, don't we? There we read that there's another man who's trying to kill all the baby boys. This time his name is Herod. The people are crying out for deliverance. They're crying out for hope. They don't realize God's already set apart the solution. And then God, in providential irony, has an angel tell Joseph and Mary to take this true deliverer, Jesus, where? Where does he tell him to go? Do you remember? Egypt. And then God's simply fulfilling his word. And he says this about Jesus when he'll come back. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Moses is born a set-apart deliverer. But of course, as we read, he will be a deliverer who is a sinner in need of salvation. But Jesus is set apart as the greater prophet promised. The savior of sinners. Genesis ended with Joseph's incredible theological faith where he said, you know what you intended for evil, God intended for good. But brothers and sisters, we must remember that principle all throughout life. What someone is doing for evil, God is doing for good. Pharaoh's punishing the Israelites. God's keeping them a community. Pharaoh's killing all the sons. God's preparing the firstborn. See, God is always doing good. And I want to ask you if you believe that in your own life. I'm not asking if you believe that generally. I'm asking if in your own life you say, you know what? What God's doing, it's good. He's working all things for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And I look at my life and I say, yes, yes, God, that's good what you're doing. That's right. Because one day the baby who survives Herod will go to the cross and give his life willingly. And if he did not spare his own son, how can we not also promise him to graciously give us all good things? Jesus who lives for us, dies for us, rose for us, ascended for us. But we read now in our fourth movement that Moses is not Jesus. And so number four on your handout, this deliverer must learn to depend on God. Now we're in Exodus 2, look in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, and here he's 40 years old, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. I want you to notice that he views the Hebrews as his own people. Now I'm, I'm very thankful for the arts. I'm not against movies. But if you've ever seen The Prince of Egypt... They add a lot. They even have this brother named Ramses who's not in the Bible. They have like this nuclear family and they give this picture of Moses having grown up as an Egyptian. 
Notice in the actual biblical text, Moses grows up thinking of himself as a Hebrew. As much fun as it would be to have Steve Martin and Martin Short somehow in the text here. The actual biblical text has Moses not identifying as an Egyptian, which gives us some hints to what his upbringing may have been. So verse 11, he grows up going to his people, looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Moses recognizes the Hebrews as his own. But now verse 12, he tries to take matters into his own hands. Moses looked this way and that and seeing no one, notice looking both ways means he took a moment to think about this. So he looked this way, he looked that way, he saw no one and he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Verse 13, when he went off the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Verse 14, he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Do you see God's grace here? Do you see that God is saving people who don't deserve it? The Hebrews beat up each other too. God just chooses in grace to do what we don't deserve. But then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Now, many Christian theologians for centuries have tried to argue that what Moses did here was not wrong. Tertullian and Aquinas and Calvin, very esteemed theologians, have all argued that what Moses did here is not actually wrong, but it surely is. Let me give you some reasons why it is. Surely we must see it as wrong because it was unnecessary. This is not Moses' place. He's not an officer of the state meeting out the sword that God gives to official authorities. Nor is it God's will. God has not yet called Moses to bring his people out. Nor is it God's way. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. See, when God calls, God works, empowering by God's might. When we take matters in our own hands, apart from God, we tend to move things backwards. So look in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Obviously, the relationship wasn't too close. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, which was a far distance. That's modern-day Saudi Arabia. So he leaves from Egypt all the way over there. And he sat down by a well. Moses now has run from his problems and will spend four long decades there. So I thought Moses was the deliverer. I thought he was set apart in the basket because he was the one who was going to bring out God's people. Why is he now sidelined for four decades? The answer is because in Exodus 2, Moses is a man who sees injustice. He wants to defend the weak, the wronged. But at this point, he attempts to do so in his own strength. Therefore, Moses finds himself disillusioned. He feels like, well, what I've done has minimal effect. Even the Hebrews are still fighting. What I've done has brought swift rejection. They've immediately said to me, who made you our judge? And Moses, Moses, fearful of repercussions, runs. Because having begun in his own strength, he quickly flees for his own sake. Anthony Salvaggio, in his commentary on Exodus, rightly helps us all that when you add zeal and the flesh, you only get pride. 
We see Moses' pride as he tries to make the timetable his own. When we attempt to replace God's timetable with our own, it is pride. Moses' methods are not God's methods. When we try to replace our methods for God's methods, it is simply pride. So what is the antidote that Moses must learn in Midian? Humility. Humility is first seen in empathy. Hebrews 11 will bring this back later on when God can call Moses. We read this in chapter 11 of Hebrews 24 through 26. When Moses had grown up, he saw the mistreatment, and instead of choosing the fleeting pleasures of sin, he regarded disgrace, notice, for the sake of Christ, the Bible says, as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. See, Moses has to move from self-centered heroism to self-emptying identification. This is what Jesus Christ did for us. The Bible says that Jesus, the eternal word, that God, the Son, was not ashamed to call us his brothers. He was crucified in the middle of two crosses because he identified with sinners. See, Moses, by Exodus 2, has not yet been sufficiently humbled. He's not yet ready to identify to the bitter end, if necessary, with the people God has set him apart to serve. He's not yet set himself apart to God. You might be thinking, though, right now, but wait. All Moses did was strike down an Egyptian. Isn't God going to come later, and God's going to kill Egyptians in just judgment through the parting of the Red Sea and other means? Why doesn't God start using Moses right away when he shows this initial drive? D.A. Carson answers, God wants Moses to learn meekness and humility. God wants Moses to rely on God's power and intervention and to await God's timing. God works in such a way that no one can ever say that Moses was the visionary or hero of the Exodus. In fact, by the time Moses is 80, which is when God speaks to him out of the burning bush, Moses is no longer a fiery, idealistic visionary. He's an old man that God has to cajole and threaten into obedience. And by the end of the book of Exodus, it's clear that the only hero is God. Listen this morning. God did not need Moses' strength, but God would use Moses' weakness. And God does not need our strength, but God will use our weakness. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I want to press this point for just a minute. In Exodus 3, which Lord William will get to soon, in Exodus 3, God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. God then explains to Moses that God has set apart Moses to go back to Egypt and to let his people go. And do you know what Moses says in verse 11 of chapter 3? But God, who am I? And then you know what God says in chapter 3, verse 14? Moses, what matters is who I am. I am what I am. Listen this morning. This is very important that you understand this. It doesn't matter who we are. It matters who God is. In our culture, we get so obsessed with what we bring to the table. That's what Moses did too. Remember, he said, God, you can't send me. I have a speech impediment. And God said to Moses, who made man's mouth? 
Do we not do the same thing? We're like, God, I know the Great Commission says make disciples, but I took this test last week and I'm an introvert, so I'm out. And God's like, but lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Like, who made you an introvert? I did. I know what I'm doing. God uses not our strengths, but our weakness. See, it's not what you bring to the table. It's what God has at the table. Here in Exodus, I want to close with chapter 2 so that you'll see a man feet in the dirt, back against a well with no hope. Because that's where we are in our own strength. Here's Moses all the way out in Saudi Arabia thinking, well, I tried. It didn't work. I guess my life's over. And he runs. Praise God that God runs after strange sheep. Praise God that our life is not over the first failure we have. Praise God that it's not the strength we bring to the table, but the weakness that he empowers. So this morning, remember three things about God, and these are not on your notes, so I'll give them to you fast if you want them. Number one, God keeps his promises in his timing. He's multiplying his people. He's giving them many descendants. They're not yet in the land because he knows the journey matters. Number two, God saves his people. God sovereignly saves his people. And number three, and I think this is the main lesson for us today, as people tempted to look at our own strengths, number three, God is the hero of the story. So bring him your weakness. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, that when we think about what we have, it ultimately doesn't matter. Those are the things you've ordained. You ordained speech impediments. You ordained introversion. You ordained all sorts of weaknesses. Teach us to boast most gladly in our weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong because then the power of Christ dwells in me. Father God, the test of whether or not we're trusting in our own strength or in yours is how quickly we quit. I know what it's like to try something in my own strength and it fails and my pride is wounded and I run. Moses tries something in his own strength and it fails and his pride is wounded and he runs. But when we come in the power of God, we don't quit when it doesn't immediately change. Because we know that God is able. So remind us, Lord, that you are the hero who will show Egypt that you alone are the Lord. And you are the hero who works through your church so that your son is glorified. God, remind us as a church, as Emmanuel, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Whatever happens in the culture, there is a God who overcomes the world. But perhaps someone this morning, Lord, realizes that they're in need of saving. Help them to realize that you're so gracious that you've set apart a deliverer who will not fail, and his name is Jesus. He is the only sinless one.
And he went to the cross to die for sinners like us. He rose victoriously, but he opens his arms to whoever will come in faith. Not in strength, but on bended knee. Move people to salvation this morning too. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.